Hey everybody, and thank you for joining us on Table Talk, the show after the show. I'm your host, Swanee. And I'm JR. Alright, so this week we're going to be discussing immersion in games. Do you do it? Do you like it? So, JR, give me an example of what you think immersion in games is. Ooh. I would say immersion in games would be the things that actually pull you into the story and things that also kind of pull your character into the story. So that could be little things like the DM taking your backstory and ha having it actually interact with what the world is and what your quests might be. And, um, and then for the player themselves, I think that also comes with the DM kind of giving you more than just the basic of here's the town, here's this person, you know, here's the quest. It's more of they're building the world around you as you, you know, you're walking through it. And I would say the best example would be when, a, you know, you enter into a new area, it's the DM telling you what you see and building you know, through the eyes of the character. And I think the the greatest DMs can literally just make you see what's there and give you things to interact with that if they just simply said you're in a tavern and you built it, you know, with your own mind, it's it's a combined storytelling. And I mean that's that's my example. Um, do you enjoy it or would you prefer the storyline to be kind of neutral where your characters aren't really, I guess you could say, pivotal to the world itself? Ooh, um, I don't know. Well, I mean, what about you? Would you rather them be these pivotal characters I mean maybe later in the game when they're you know these these powerful and important people but you would think in the beginning they're reacting to the world instead of the world is reacting to them and as the game progresses you would think it transitions to they're not having an effect on the world instead of the world affecting them um, especially as you know they progress to much higher levels and you know, more important story arcs compared to, you know, the very beginning. I, I really believe in the very beginning you're basically just Joe Blow in the, in the story world and you're interacting with the information, you know, that you're given and it's not till much later that you're actually making changes. Well, my thing is, I like immersion in the game because obviously, as you had explained, you know, the the DM is painting this story. They are telling you what is happening and some people might not have access to, you know, figures and whatnot, you know, miniatures to help it. They might not have terrain to build the world. 
Some people might not even have, you know, battle mats or a whiteboard or something to draw the, the area. They might not be playing online. It might literally be theater of the mind. And how the DM discusses and, you know, describes the world, I feel would actually pull me in. The more description, the better. Because if, you know, if you say, oh, there's a tavern and, you know, it's large and it has, you know, a big door and there's people standing outside versus there's a tavern. You can see that it's, you know, worn with age. There's moss hanging down from, from the rooftops and the gutter was slightly bent, you know, as water is kind of spilling out. You see a couple rats in the, in the far left corner, you know, chewing on a couple pieces of bread that somebody had discarded earlier. As you're approaching the door, you see the door open and there's two men that just start brawling and you take a quick step to the left and they fall in that puddle where the rats were and the rats scatter. That right there to me, I'm already envisioning it, pulled me in and I don't need to see, you know, the map. I don't need to see the people involved. My mind's already painting this picture of, okay, there's these two guys fighting. I don't know what race they are, but my mind's already saying, okay, they're probably human. I don't know. It would also depend on how you describe the town if you told me the demographic, but you know, let's just say it's a generic human town. My mind already went, okay, there's two humans, they're fighting, and I see a couple gray rats in the corner, and they're eating some moldy bread with some stagnant brown water, and the stone is probably, or the, the floor is probably like a cobblestone, a gray something, you know, covered in dirt and moss. You know, I could see this gray, like Spanish moss hanging off of the building. The building itself is probably brown. Like you didn't even describe all of that extra stuff, but my mind's already painting this picture. And, and on that note, <coughs> I, I'm actually, because you know, we're so focused nowadays on immersive elements. Mm -hmm. So having the battle map and having all these things drawn out, and Roll20 having, you know, you know all, all these different things that you can add. I love building the maps and stuff for Roll20. But I mean, yeah, I, I think the exposition and just the general storytelling flair of the DM helps a lot more with building the world. And I do like the, the concept that people build on top of it with their own perspectives on things. And yes, over time, as you know, you get more and more information, some aspects that you see might change, but like the general gist of what you just said was exactly what I was envisioning with, you know, I'm, I'm looking at like this more rundown building and you know, the, the water spilling out, I'm thinking it's more like a, like a dreary town. Mm -hmm. And you can see these things building just from that little bit of detail that the DM decided to put in. Mm -hmm. Compared to looking at a map, you're, you're not imagining building anything. It's, it's there for you, and so what you see is what you see. Mm -hmm. And I do understand there are some players, I mean, we, we actually have a player that prefers to have extremely detailed maps and um, everything drawn out for them because they're able to focus much better on 
the rest of the immersive experience. So it's kind of a, a give and take on if you should have all of these miniatures and stuff or if you can get away with um, theater of the mind. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very much a, it depends on the group that you're playing with. Mm -hmm. um, well, kind of going back to you know, your question earlier when you were asking how I felt about immersion and going back to the player aspect of it, not just the surround, like the surroundings. I enjoy when the characters are involved with the world. I enjoy having the characters shape the world. But personally, unless the storyline kind of focuses on me or another player, I don't really feel that adding character backstories is necessary because not everything is about the heroes at that point in time. This is not the hero's story because we the heroes might be trying to kill this evil guy. But there's another group of heroes that are doing the same exact thing and why don't we hear about them? I could see, yeah, I could see that. You know, like the game that we're in right now, the one that we played yesterday, our DM does a great job in, you know, tying in all of our backstories into the game in a non-obtrusive way. It's mm -hmm. not about, you know, the gnome and it's not about the dwarf and it's not about the tieflings. It's about the world and how we are involved with it. We're not main characters in this. We are side characters in a big world. I, I think we can tell that seeing as we're all going to die because of your choices. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> so, you know, at that point, it's kind of like, do I as a DM want to directly involve your backstories into the storyline itself or do I just want to have you interact with the world that already has a story in place like our Wednesday game and our Friday games that I DM the dungeon crawl that was specifically made because you requested a dungeon crawl you had not played one and that was something you really wanted to do so I made one for you the dungeon crawl specifically was sort supposed to be based around your character. Oh, and the story I came up with for like what he's seeking and yeah, you okay. know. So I kind of like I. That's why I ask ahead of time for everybody's backstories, and I want as detailed. I mean, I don't care if you give me a six-page story. I want as much detail as possible, along with you know bullet points that you feel would be the most key important information, so I can throw that into the story to add some flavor. You know, your character Jodari has been looking for his mother for what, 10 years? Mm. And all of a sudden he finds a locket in this one cave that he was drawn to because there was information about something that was there. Mm -hmm. And why would his mother's locket be there? Why would there be a note inside the locket? If you think about it, maybe his mother's been keeping tabs on him this entire time, and he doesn't know that. Yeah. She's probably been one, two, three steps ahead, and is like, hey, you need to turn back because this isn't a good place for you. 
He does, he's not aware of that. He's just going, I need to find my mom. Now we have um, Mufasa. Mufasa, when he gave me his backstory, the player himself is not very good with making backstories. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest about that. But he gave me like three paragraphs, just three small paragraphs. And it told me so much compared to your 10. There was so much information that I was like, I need to base the entire thing around his character now. Have your character sprinkled in, have the gnome's character, the turtle, you know, have everybody just kind of like have information that would have possibly drawn them to this place. But he, he actually became a centralized focus. He became the centralized focus because one, the player doesn't really play the game, you know, so for me, it's kind of a way to, to lure them into the game if you will. Um, but two, because of the backstory, now I have, you know, a big bad for you guys to fight. Cause it was honestly just going to be a dungeon crawl. Just you kill things and you get to the end and that's it. But because of his story, I was like, Hey, I have a great idea for a big bad and this is what's going to happen. Unluckily, now that I'm thinking about his backstory, I'm not happy <laughs> about what, what could be at the end. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like I said, you know, and then in the Friday campaign, it was kind of the same thing. More or less, I had the idea set up for this pretty much just, uh, I guess you could say like almost a Hunger Games minus the killing. And you guys were supposed to just join this tournament. That was literally it. You were just supposed to join a tournament and have a couple things to interact with here and there. But then things just started progressing at a pace that I was not prepared for. And I was like, oh my God, wait a minute. What about this? And what about this? And I just started throwing things at you guys and you guys were eating this up. Like, yes, give me more. I love this. And so I was like, wait a minute. And I went back and I think this was about, I say four or five sessions in, I went back and read through your, both of your uh, backgrounds. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And then I started adding in information based off your backgrounds into the story to pull you guys in. Because the way I saw it, you guys are just players in this world. You're just side characters. Now you guys are the main characters of the story. Mm -hmm. But in some campaigns, you're not the main character. I, I am gonna admit, I, I love that game because it was like three sessions. It took three sessions for your your players basically to derail the game. Yeah. Because <laughs> it went from tournament and then we were meeting these individual PCs and just because of us meeting the the player or not not PCs, but NPCs. NPCs, yeah. So so just from us meeting those NPCs, it changed our entire focus. We went from, oh, we're here to win this can or you know or uh, this tournament. tournament so that, you know, we can learn you know this greater level of magic and stuff and within yeah i would say within three mm -hmm. three games now it, you guys are staging a revolution now we're staging a revolution <laughs> so, yeah uh. i mean but i mean once you interjected some things knowing both the players and the characters oh, yeah. you, it, it you knew it was coming lot. it helps a lot to know your players because at that point i do know what interests you guys speaking of immersion that actually in a way doing what doing that 
pulled us more into the story mm-hmm. because it made us more interested in the things that we could change instead of just the things we were doing. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that's important is you need to have, to, to build immersion, it needs to be more about what you can do within the world, not what you're doing within the world. So like what you can, what you can change within the world or what the world, like your actions and stuff, that's another level of immersion. Because if you have, you know, I think there should always be consequences to actions mm-hmm. or there should always be consequences to, you know, choices that you make. So if you decide to run off and go save this one town when you were in the middle of a quest to go defeat a dragon or something like that. Yeah, that sounds very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't go fight the beholder. Maybe I shouldn't have. Yeah. Maybe you should have focused on the end goal. I probably should have. Yeah. And maybe then everybody would still be alive at the end of Everybody's this. Everybody's still alive. They're still alive right now. Right now. It yes. ain't looking like it. <laughs> I'm about to die. No. Was it 176 zombies and the undead beholder thing? Well, there, there was. That's not good. There was. I, I took out a lot. Oh, yeah. You took out a lot. And it took you out too. Yeah. Because you're about to be a statue. <laughs> so. But yeah, so, you know, like I said, immersion to me, I don't feel it's 100% necessary in certain situations. And as you said, it's mostly dependent on the players themselves. I would ask the players if they. I would ask the players if they were more into being involved in the world, you know, and actually having significance in this world versus, you know, not really knowing anything, just kind of being some random, as you said, Joe Blow, who runs a store in the corner doesn't really matter. Now he became an adventurer for some reason. I really think that low-level characters, that's kind of what they should be. They should have their own goals and motivations and stuff, and it shouldn't be some gigantic major quest, kind of like uh, Jay Bao. He just wants to get back to his family. Mm-hmm. And he could be, that could be anybody you meet off the street. Mm-hmm. They could just be wanting to go home. And now we're level nine? Nine multiple sessions in and he has his goals though his main goal to get back home is still the same he's also realized the importance of his actions now and so he's become that central character Mm -hmm. I think for one shots maybe and for low level, you're just trying to get people to enter into the game. Maybe immersion isn't vital, but I really, I believe that immersion is one of the things that keeps people mm-hmm. coming back. And a lack of it basically turns it into a first person shooter. Like mm-hmm. you're just, what you're reacting to whatever comes up. You're not thinking ahead about what, what might happen in the world. Mm-hmm. 
No, I, I, I can see that. I can definitely see that. So what do you think can break immersion? I'm going to let you start with that one first. Well, I feel that people, DMs who aren't prepared or players who aren't prepared can break immersion because you could have an extremely pivotal scene, you know, we're all in the middle of this big battle and say you're up against a hundred orcs and you have to defend the town the DM who doesn't know how to do mob attacks or the attacks specifically for the characters or the players who don't know their spell books and how to utilize their feats and whatnot, uh, that can ruin the immersion because you're so intense into this scenario. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh wait, I'm sorry, let me you know, look at my spell book for the next 10 minutes because I forgot how this spell works. You know, on that, on that note, uh, there's two things I want to bring up. Number one, yes, I find it annoying when the immersion is broken because players aren't prepared for their turn. And I find that that happens a lot more often when there's devices at the table. So if there's a phone, people will be distracted. Oh, you know, it's not my turn, so I'm gonna be on Facebook or something. Hate that so much because when it comes around their turn, also out of nowhere, the one question I hate having to pop up is, okay, so what's going on? Mm-hmm. If you have to ask that, you need to put your phone down. Like you, you shouldn't have it out unless your character sheet or something's on it in the first place. Mm-hmm. But if you're not into the story, you are breaking the immersion for everyone else at the table. Mm-hmm. Especially if the flow of the battle had been going well, or if the flow of the scene had been going well, and then all of a sudden... You put the brakes. You put the you put the brakes on the whole scene and basically create a train wreck because you decided not to stay focused on what you were doing at the time. And I understand there's you know emergencies and stuff pop, pop up, but our especially, you know, of all people, me knowing this, our addiction to our phones commonly breaks immersion. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a good thing that I was going to say, uh, Rob, I like how he always says, you're on deck. So he's, so, you know, someone else is enacting their turn. You know that you're next in the initiative order. And if there's a lot of stuff going on, if there's like 10 monsters and, and you guys, and there's like, what? How many people are at that table? Six? Seven? Yeah. Six or seven. Okay. Um, I would say that... Him saying you're on deck kind of snaps you into... That this is, this is my time. Yeah. I've got I've to be prepared for when it hits my turn. Now, my character in that campaign is very easy to play. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, there are some specific things he can do but for the most part it's almost it's basically a magical fighter mm-hmm. so i i can just swing ahead no problem but for characters that are multi-class multi-class like crazy but also characters that are super spell reliant if you are not prepared 
when your turn comes around and you, as you said, you're sitting there in your spell book, yeah, yeah, I hate it because you're, you're, I don't want to say wasting everyone's time because something you might do might be vitally important. Mm -hmm. I understand if you don't know how a spell might be ruled. Yeah. If it comes to that. But you should have a basic understanding of every spell in the spell book if you're going to be a spellcaster. That's true. Oh, it's like, you know, me when I'm playing, um, actually, no, I just realized I'm playing two clerics now. I have uh, oh, Nary in the Pathfinder game and Mercy in our Tuesday game. Um, but I, I always focus on the initiative order and I pay attention, like I'm not like I'm not paying attention, but I try to prepare my spells at least two people ahead just because I don't know what's going to happen between you who might be first in line and me who might be sixth in line. I don't know what's going to happen so I can prepare when you're ready and then all of a sudden it goes oh this other character decided to do this and it completely sidetracked me and now I can't do this one spell. I have to make sure I have this spell prepared and then I have a backup and then I have to have a backup for the backup. Because again, you never know what can happen. On that note, during the Pathfinder game, I was about to cast Wall of, Wall of Stone whenever we got attacked by the di uh, dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I know where you were like, I'm summoning T-Rexes. Yeah. And when you did that, <laughs> I was just like, well, Wall of Stone's out. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Because but yeah, I, I agree with you. As soon as he said, you know, oh, there's dinosaurs. I immediately asked, he was like, well, what are you going to do? Because this is a surprise round. And I said, where am I? Can I get on top of the, the side of the castle? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, cool, I'm going up there. Well, what are you doing? I'm casting summon monster. Well, what are you summoning? Dinosaurs. And it was like, why? Like, what? I mean, I could have leapt down. I could have done something else. But it was, a, to me, this was actually an immediate reaction because I just kind of ran through my spell book real fast. I saw that I had summon monsters prepared and I was like, hey, I have summon monsters and I can summon, guess what? Dinosaurs. You know, that's another thing that, that, that he does is he puts pressure on you. That's good because Because I, a lot of I DMs won't a lot of DMs won't. They, they'll let and you people sit there will, for two, three minutes. And it's so unrealistic. If you're sitting there arbitrating for, you know, 10, 15 minutes going, okay, well, what are we going to do? Uh, guys, I, I said the dragon was on the way to the town. Yeah, no, like, and I love okay, that he does it, that. It's, it's literally right on top of the town now. It's been 10 to 15 minutes. It's definitely on top of the town. Yeah, and watch for it, watch us, <laughs> it could have been two minutes of talking. Yes. But in-game, it's been about 10, 15 minutes of this dragon flying towards us, and it literally puts the pressure on us. Yeah. And our DM on Tuesday does the same exact thing. Yeah. He, you know... He's not waiting around he for us wait. to, to or, you know, come up I, with the perfect solution. Love, because I'm learning from both of them. Like, you know, I DM obviously for you guys, but I have my own style of doing things and I'm kind of stuck in that. So I'm watching and listening to these other DMs and I'm learning from them, like how to do things, how to handle combat, how to handle situations, you know, where you guys are spending the next 10 hours talking about something. And so now I will throw out to you guys, yeah, there's a, a Kraken coming in from the sea. What are you guys gonna do? And you guys are like, oh, well, I don't know. And you spend like the next 10 minutes and I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I need you guys to roll initiative. Why? Well, because the entire time you were talking, 
the Kraken showed up and now he's right there on top of your ship. And, and it makes like, it makes people realize that once again, your your actions not that not only that, but your actions have consequences. Mm-hmm. And if you spend your entire time thinking, oh, well, I'm on the start menu of Skyrim and yeah. I just hit pause and let me go through and eat bread and all the rest of this stuff. That's not happening. Mm-hmm. That's not how, you know, it really works. It's not a video game. These the, the time is still flowing. Yeah. And it might flow at a different rate, but it's still flowing. Mm-hmm. Um that actually made me just think of uh, another uh, good topic for us to have some other time. Um, uh, we need to have a discussion about DMing and if you sh- if you need to play the game first before you DM. Because I'm of the notion that you should. Um, unless you're running, you know, one of the starter modules that kind of help you know how to do everything Mm -hmm. i really believe that you you really should at least experience a couple games so two reasons you don't end up with players being themselves (laughs) because there's there's going to be those those people who take advantage of a dm who doesn't know what he's doing yeah and then it also helps you understand a little bit about how to world build mm-hmm. so but i'm gonna talk about that less now because yeah we'll go into it another, some other time some other time um but yeah so let's see we had immersion breaking it uh you have very limited uh dming experience mm-hmm. um but as a player and a partial DM, um, does it bother you that immersion is either too intense or not intense enough? I know this, this makes me a little twisted. I enjoy immersion being too much sometimes because like, I like seeing I like seeing the game affect people. It's the same feeling I believe that someone would have if they made a movie or wrote a book and it actually drew an emotional response from people. Like you with Le Miserable? Yes. <laughs> like I, I normally hate musicals and couldn't deal with them, but that was too much for me just because it hit it, it, it home. Yeah. And for my I think my ultimate achievement as a DM was making you guys realize the little girl Mm -hmm. was not only dead but she had died down here and the fact that that hit you of all people because (laughs) you're you're you can be so stoic sometimes yeah but the fact that it hit you and actually that immersive level, like to, to such a level, it drew you into, it's almost like you're watching a movie mm-hmm. and you see that scene where some, something horrible and heart-wrenching has happened and it actually made you cry. And I was like, I've accomplished my mission. I've, I've actually <laughs> done good as a DM because I 
brought the immersive the immersion to such a level that you were attached just to the thought of this little girl mm-hmm. and the things that she had had to go through. Yeah, I mean, even the, even the chimera, just the fact <laughs> that he died alone in the bottom of the bank and all that. Like even right now, it, I'm it, not. It, 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 you're, you're projecting. I know I might be projecting, but I'm, <laughs> I, but you 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 had such a reaction to it just because of a little bit of exposition mm-hmm. and a little forethought on my my part going okay wh- what how would these things have died and that's another thing that i find annoying about people fail with immersion is you go into this dank dark crypt and yet there's this beast that's surviving down here and there's nothing for it to eat and it's been trapped down here for millennia, even though it's a breathing, living being. Mm-hmm. No, you guys went down there, and for the most part, the only things that were left were ghosts and vermin. Mm-hmm. And I think a few demons. We had, I think we had seen a Baylor. We didn't see it. It was sealed behind a door. Yes. Yes. And that was literally, like, we knew there was a Baylor there, and we saw the gelatinous cube. And the gibbering mouthers, the I think it was a charis, I think it was called. Um, the one that I turned a stinger into a rapier. Yes. And the wraith that I made into a paladin. Yeah. And then the ghost girl. The only thing, okay, because you did mess up on one thing. Oh no. The drider. Yes, the drider that was down there. That was the only thing because even during that session, my character was like, "How is this thing alive?" Remember, this my that was my was my first time DMing. That was yeah, it was your first and only time DMing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, 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 yeah, no, that that right there, looking back, major mistake. But you guys got to think like minor flaws like that. It's okay because you can just kind of go, oh, I mean, it was magically. Oh, still alive. It's magic is still alive. I, but I hate, but... I hate, I hate, though I do understand it's magic, I think there should be some level of realism in yeah. some events. It's kind of like when you guys went down and you found the uh, Titan Boa and the Shadow Drakes, and I had a whole ecosystem mm-hmm. that made sense that was running down there. Yeah. I did that on purpose. So be- you wouldn't have to question So you wouldn't have to question how it was down there. But yes, I, I still remember, like to this day, I still remember the running you guys running on that drider and me going, why did I put that down there? And then <laughs> also going, oh yeah, because she hates spiders. Yeah. I purposely did it because well, you didn't like the spiders. The other player and I. Yes, both, you both. You both, we both like hate spiders. spiders. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't resist. I just couldn't resist. And I shouldn't have done a drider. I should have had just regular spiders down there because it would have made sense. They would have been like eating rats or something. Mm-hmm. And the reason I, I left a lot of puddings and oozes and all that stuff is because it was supposed to be this septic like the sewer system underneath and i was thinking that you know a magical society might be using these things to basically clean the waterways Mm -hmm. because while you were down there i think i remember explaining that it wasn't really dirty Mm -hmm. and the reason for that is because the puddings and oozes and all that stuff constantly go along and clean everything Mm -hmm. so but yeah i i think it breaks immersion when you have encounters where you're like okay you're going to have to explain, how in the heck did this get down there? Yeah. So. Um, but no, was it last night's session, the immersion 
got to the point where I had to turn my mic off and I was actually crying Ooh. because my character, I wouldn't call her lawful stupid, but she made an extremely stupid decision. I, as a player, would never make this decision. She's lawful, not very bright. She's not dumb, but she is so devout. devout. She's so devoted to her faith in pleasing the goddess that she sees this town in trouble. She sees that it's overrun with zombies. She activated her shield guardian. Obviously, it's doing damage. And she's like, okay, well, I'm doing something. I can hopefully get my friends out of the way. And then I can trail behind them after I de deactivate my shield guardian and take out a couple, you know, numbers. So we're not overrun by, you know, a hundred and something zombies. That was her thought process. And then you realize she told you guys this, but everybody got mad and started yelling at her. You can't do this. You can't do this. And she's like, well, I'm going to do it anyways, whether you guys want me to or not. You also have to consider she's only known you guys for three, maybe four days. She technically doesn't have any ties to any of you, except for the fact that all of us are champions for the goddess of good. She cares about you guys. It's not that she doesn't, but she doesn't have any ties to any of you to keep her there. She probably doesn't have any ties to living either because she made a suicidal decision. She was okay with that. Oh, as God. long as it was doing something to protect people and to hopefully get rid of some chaos, she was willing to sacrifice her own life. Now, when this happened, I as a player was dying on the inside because I made an extremely stupid decision on my character's part. All of the other players, having bonded with one another for months, decided we're not going to fight with you and they left her and she she was hurt but she understood she was the outlier in the situation she was not part of your system and that's okay and she wasn't going to be upset with you guys about it she even said i would prefer if you all went inside because you're all a family she doesn't want to be the, the cause of killing you all, which now she is, but she didn't want to be the cause of killing you all. The one character that hurt her the most out of everybody was Pantelis. Just because she purposefully went out of her way to make sure that he was okay. When like after the big fight had happened at the castle, she ran out there tried to help him, found out he was okay, found out that his friend was okay. And, you know, this was after he had just been captured and almost, you know, cooked in a bowl. So she's like, hey, I need to make sure he's okay. Ari and Malice, you know, they have their own little love story going on. She, you know, she cares about Ari. She sees Ari like a sister to her. She sees her like a best friend. She sees Malice like a brother. She's only known these people, again, for about three or four days. She leaves you guys, goes to find Pantelis, brings him back, 
And the two of them have kind of been like, I wouldn't say stuck at the hip because they don't really interact. But at the end of the day, it's like she would listen to Pantelis and she would defend him. The one thing I find odd about that is your character's alignments, I feel, are opposing. <laughs> because you're you're lawful, and I think he's chaotic. I mean, he might not be. I'm not sure. But he he makes some choices. Well, he's neutral. He He has a very neutral mentality about everything. Yeah, he makes some choices that I'm just like... Man, oh man. Like, But anyway, so after everybody else had abandoned her, Pantelis was the one pretty much yelling at her. You need to get inside. He stood outside with her and he was like, you need to go inside. We're not doing this. Stop being stupid. Everybody else had already abandoned her. He was the only one who stood outside and was like, please come inside. Don't do this. And she said, no, I'm going to fight. You know, I, I don't mind dying. Again, I, as a player, was like, I need to go inside. I'm going to die. <laughs> but. Even in the end, he At the left. end, he was like, I'm not going to stay here and watch this. And he left. He, he left you guys and he left me. And it hurt. And I turned my mic off and I started crying. And I was like, I can't believe that of all the people, he would abandon me. And then as the horde was coming in, he's like, all right, crap. I dimension door to stand behind her. Yep. Because he was on a roof watching it. And when he said that, I kid you not, the tears came down and I was like, oh my God, yes, he cares. (laughs) And I was so happy and I was like, but I'm going to get this guy killed. And I felt so bad. And I was I was hoping, like even in character, I was hoping at, at the end of the day, you would realize you're alone against this horde and finally go, on second thought, I'm going to run. And when you didn't, that was the only thing that changed his mind because he was up on the roof watching. Mm-hmm. That was the only thing that changed his mind. He goes, I can't just let her die. But that's the thing. As soon I'm still as, mad though. Like as me as soon as Pantelis showed back up that was as the dm said the call to action yeah as soon as he came back everybody else was like dang it and then they all went and like everybody just came out and were like we're gonna help her and i was like oh my god you guys have no idea how happy i am that you showed up like as a as a player as a player and as a character so right now mercy's probably like Oh my god, these are these are I can trust these people. Well, considering her backstory, she doesn't know what friends are because everybody's betrayed her. So, these are the first people who've actually come back. Realize I'm rolling to die at the end of this fight if I'm still alive and Mercy's still alive. And it's going to cuz remember, he's 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 also barbarian too, so he kind of he's got a rage aspect to him. That's going to choose if I either A, punch you in the face, or B, give you a hug. <laughs> well, I mean, technically, if you punch me in the face and I'm already turned to stone, you might kill me. So how about you wait till, you know, I get greater restoration no, no, and no. then you can help no, no, me. Like, then no, you can what, hit me. What I'm thinking of, though, is if you turn to stone and I punch you, you dead dead. And so we can get revivify or something and bring you back like that. But... But yeah, no, so that that was my thing. Like that kind of like ties back into the whole immersion thing. 
I was so invested in this story and the characters and, you know, pretty much being there to see everybody else, you know, progress in their stories, like Aria Malice's love story, Pantelis's love for money, your love for your family, you know, Chappie's love for whatever he's in love with. You know, I'm sitting here, you know, watching from the sidelines because I already lost my character, Granny. And it hurt to lose her because I didn't get a chance to actually develop her character. But having Mercy, you know, I, I get to play a character who wants to be involved with people, who wants to be involved with life, you know, not like Granny who, yeah, she loves life, obviously, but she's old. She doesn't really care if she dies. Whereas Mercy, you know, she wants to be involved with everybody. She wants to make sure that everybody's okay. Being there, I get to witness you guys grow as characters because I have no intentions. Like I'm not purposely trying to kill my characters, but I have no intention of having my characters live. I will not do decisions like this, you know, purposefully. It's just, as the players like to say, it's what my character would do. And the DM encourages that. You know, he encourages us to literally act the way that our characters would. And that's fine. You know, Mercy will die for believing, you know, what she wants and doing what she wants. But it's, it's hard. It's hard to play chaotic stupid. It really is. <laughs> But no, it's not even chaotic stupid. It's lawful stupid. Lawful stupid. I think lawful stupid's worse. It is. But I mean, I'm at, I'm at that point, you know, it's like, I was so immersed in this story of you all that I'm willing to just kind of be an NPC in the background and just die and then come back as another NPC just because I'm, I'm really not here for myself. I'm here to listen to the story of you guys. Well... I'm going to say this right now. Did you learn your lesson as, as a character? Mercy has most definitely learned her lesson. Okay. That's, <laughs> if we survive, that's, that's all that matters. If she survives, she is going to be begging everybody for forgiveness <laughs> because she has learned her lesson. <laughs> Good doesn't always triumph over evil. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad, glad she understands that now. Uh, it's not going to matter in the long run. <laughs> so before we get into our next topic, I want to talk about the giveaway that we're going to be running. So JR and I are going to be giving away a uh, Dungeons and Dragons Essentials Kit. Not sponsored by Wizards of the Coast. It's just a gift from us to our listeners. So, can I win? No, you can't win. Oh, <laughs> you, we already have one at the house. Um, no, so all I need you to do is anybody who is listening, if you can follow us, subscribe to us on whatever listening platform that you are on, if you can screenshot the image and DM it to me on DM Disaster on Instagram then you will be entered. There will be more information on the actual 
Instagram post as well. I think it's important to tell you how tell them how long it's going to be running for. Well, yeah, I was going to have that on the thing, but sure. So we're going to be running this until the end of the month. So we should be having a winner, I would say, by the 5th of December. Ooh. You sure I can't win it? Because if you think about it, six more days is my birthday. No, sorry. That's not how this works. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's kind of like an early Christmas present, though. For somebody else, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. You, can keep, you keep shutting me down. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so more information is going to be given on my Instagram. That's at DMDisaster on Instagram. All right, so... Monster of the week. The monster of the week is. I guess the displacer beast. The displacer beast. I mean, that's kind of messed up seeing that I talked about it last week. True, but it is one of your favorite monsters. We should allow users to submit. Yeah. Like people, people who are listening, they should submit monsters and we can talk about how to, you know, their strengths and weaknesses, how we might play them or. Definitely. So for all of you that are listening, if you have anything uh, interesting that you want to add, if you have homebrewed a specific monster, modified it, you know, for your campaign to make it, you know, weaker, stronger, however you see fit, uh, please feel free to either DM me on my Instagram or you can email at tabletalksubmissions at gmail.com. You know, actually on that note, uh, the DM for our Tuesday game, Mm-hmm. Um, he should definitely submit the Beholder that he's running right now. He should definitely submit all of the monsters. No, no, but running. I'm thinking the Beholder. He, he needs to submit it, and we can do like an early, another early session about how we might fight it. <laughs> and then, you know, share it with everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, Displacer Beast, that is one of your favorite monsters. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's my go-to. The... It depends on how you want to play it yourself, but I, I definitely would think the best way to play it is kind of a suspenseful scenario. Mm-hmm. The as I said, the, the stalking in the forest on the the last uh, podcast that we had. Yeah. Um. I really believe that it's that kind of monster that can act as a push. Mm-hmm. Um, and force people um, to like force your players to either a keep moving or puts them on edge so they want to take that short rest or they want to take that long rest but they're not sure if they can mm-hmm. and they can't do the lackadaisical thing and just set up a camp and hope for the best. And the other bonus to it is depending on how you envision the Displacer Beast, you could have it single animal, kind of like tigers in the wild. They're territorial. And for the most part, they live separate lives. Or you could run them like a pack of lions where 
pride. The yeah, it's a pride of lions. I'm sorry, <laughs> but yeah, you could you could have them like a pride of lions, and they could be hunting you together. And depending on your style as a DM, you could set up a very terrifying encounter, or you could set up one that is just slightly stressful. And that's one of the things I like about them. Um, for their base stats and stuff, when I look at the, the challenge rating of three, I'm kind of on the edge about that. I sometimes feel like they're a lower challenge rating, especially if you have players that are prone to min-maxing. Like if you have a player... Or metagaming. Or metagaming. But if you have a player that has an extremely high attack bonus, mm -hmm. or if you have a magic caster that, once again, metagaming, or they might not be, they might just be knowledgeable, they can roll for that, um, their challenge rating drops significantly because they only have an armor class of 13. And you would think that that wouldn't be very high for uh, something that's a you know, challenge rating 3. And it, it's not. It's the displacement ability that they have added to that that makes them that challenge rating. The downside to that displacement ability is once they're hit, until it comes back around to their turn, the ability's gone. Mm -hmm. So your players can just wail on this thing. And average HP comes out to 85 which is not a lot. So having just one... I mean, also considering it is a large monstrosity, mm -hmm. I do feel like the AC should be Little. higher and the HP should definitely be higher. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with, with bumping the... You, you might bump the AC one because you have to realize that you're actually kind of bumping it 1.5. So it's instead of it being a... a a 14 it's more like a 14 and a half 15 mm -hmm. because you have disadvantage until you hit it mm -hmm. which is going to be really really bad for let's say a rogue or anything else that only gets one attack and just the spread you're looking at not a very high chance to hit but if you have something like a wizard and he can drop some sort of spell I mean, as long as it's not dexterity based. I mean, you can cast like fairy fire on it. Yes, I do. I do agree that that is a great way to combat it because it, it that gets rid of the displacement ability mm -hmm. right off the bat because you can tell exactly where the actual being is. Um, it's not like mirror image. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even mirror image. If you think about it. If someone casts Fairy Fire, the mirror images themselves, they're figments. They're not actual, that's a Pathfinder thing. They're, they're not actually there. They're mm -hmm. illusions. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like if uh, you have True Sight and someone casts Mirror Image, it doesn't matter because you can ignore the illusion. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with the Displeasure Beast. If someone had True Sight, they can just straight up ignore the displacement ability because they don't see it. They, I mean, they might see a blurry, misty image, but they know it's fake mm -hmm. compared to, oh, yeah, this, it's right here. Mm -hmm. um, 
But another pet peeve of mine with it is that if you look at the multi-attack and it says that it makes two attacks with its tentacles, I get frustrated with that because this thing has claws. It has has teeth. teeth. Why is it limited to just attacking with the tentacles? I understand that that's the thing it's known for and all that. And it might be trying to stay outside of um, your range. Mm -hmm. Because if you notice uh, when, you know, if if you've got the monster manual, Mm -hmm. you would notice that it has a 10-foot reach, which is really important. A lot of DMs forget that. That 10-foot reach means that you can attack and threaten somebody from outside of their attack range of their attack range which means that you can get away with striking and leaving mm-hmm. and that's another way that that's an important way that you don't get you, the attack of opportunity you don't get the attack of opportunity unless they have a reach weapon like a one a halberd or something like that yeah. and a lot of dms forget that and they'll rush these things right up next to people and attack with it that's not how a displacer beast or you would think any cat you know if you think of a cat how it would fight yeah a cat's not gonna stay there and fight you like the stories about how cougars and um stalk people they wait for an opportunity they're opportunistic attackers they wait for you to turn your back or um kind of drop your guard and then they attack you. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I envision the Displacer Beast. I don't envision, especially until you get into like a major combat scenario with them, I could see them being as, you know, a DM going, hey, what's your passive perception? And if you're, if they're sitting there looking around for this thing, and that's the other thing, I, I think this thing should be proficient in stealth. So, it should have, you, you should always roll stealth for this thing, stalking people through the forest, but it should have like a plus six, plus seven to stealth. It should be very hard to see. Mm-hmm. And I believe with its ability, it should have advantage. So it should have a very high stealth roll as it's stalking these people. And if people fail their passive perceptions, or if they get really close, you can, I love when people get really close because you can be like, you think there's something there but you're not sure because that can give them a hint of there is probably something there or you could just be that DM who's kind of a butt in building suspense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you think there's something there, but um, I, I, I really hate the whole idea of if you com- if you fail, even if it's by one, if you fail your role even by one, it's the same as if you failed it by 10. Mm-hmm. I'd rather them have others oh, kind of a, a little hint or if you pass it just by one, I, I think that falls in... I think there's like a range. Mm-hmm. And plus one, minus one, you kind of get a hint. Yeah, yeah. Versus if you get a plus 10 or minus 10, it's, you either it, get, you get information or you don't. Yeah. It, like if, if you had a plus 10 perception to this thing that... Remember, my, my go-to modification for this thing is invisibility. Yeah. For love of God, not greater invisibility. That would be just evil. Um, but... It, that would be like the rogue sitting there and he's like, I know there's something there. And he's looking at the leaves in the forest and then he realizes, oh wait, there's six depressions in the leaves right there by that tree. 
And then he realizes that one of the depression goes away and another one pops up. So he knows that that invisible creature is there. Now he might not be able to tell exactly where it's at or what it is, but he knows there's something there. Mm -hmm. So um, I hate the fact that the passive perception on it is an 11 though. Yeah. Because again, the way you were phrasing, it is a very stealthy creature. I feel that because it is stealthy, it should have the ability to stalk. And stalking means that you would be aware of your surroundings. Um, because you would mm -hmm. kind of be an apex predator at this point. You should know what's happening around you. So why is it that my passive is an 11? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see the average person walking through the forest and sneaking up on a tiger. It ain't happening. That's true. He, he's going to see you coming. <laughs> Because um, perception is based off of what wisdom, correct? Yes, ten plus and, whatever and, your mod is. And so I understand why the passive perception is one. But when you have beast style monsters, and that's oh man, that's another thing. We'll, we'll get into that uh, some other time. That's another good idea for a topic. Would be um, changes um, changes to druid and uh, ranger. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that you sh it should get some sort of proficiency bonus, like a, a, a plus four. So its passive perception might be a 15. Or its uh, passive perception should be, you know, yeah, a 15. Should have that, it should have, you know, some sort of plus to it. So, you know, plus four. And the stealth should be boosted. Uh, I kind of feel that they should probably alter the displacer beast to have it. You know how like they have like the dragons, they have like the wormlings and the, the young adults and adults and oh, like they grow. They grow. I feel like there should be like an like elder that. displacer beast because the elder displacer beast would have gained us. These higher the, level the, abilities. These higher level abilities because they've lived so long, you know, they've learned how to stalk. A generic displacer beast would be considered, I guess you could say, a young adult to an adult. That's like some people will run dire wolves as the alpha wolves of a pack. Mm -hmm. And it kind of makes sense because you, you're thinking, like, these are going to be the tougher ones. I, I could see that. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I, I have come across, uh, I don't know if it's just some random thing or if there was a book for it but people have made baby monsters basically mm -hmm. and one of them was a baby displacer beast and god help you if you come across an animal's den with its children in it it's not gonna be that goes back to um layer abilities i think that there should be some sort of layer ability. Like if you go into a cave and you find these displacer beast babies or you find uh, the displacer beast itself, this is its natural environment. This is a place that it's always at. If you were in your natural environment, you would have some sort of better abilities mm -hmm. to either A, get around, or you know places to hide, or you might know places where you could um, set up an ambush or something like that. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I think of these as very much ambush predators. I think if you're setting up an encounter for these, especially if it's like these, are, this is your thing that people have to go find and kill, I really believe that as they go into this cave or whatever, or into this forest, 
they're going to get blindsided a couple times. Mm -hmm. This thing's going to attack them and weaken them on the way. That's that's your traps for this encounter. That's your traps for this little mini quest is these hit and run guerrilla warfare style attacks that it ends up lowering, you know, your HP or forcing you to do a short rest because it's really hurt one of your characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on, you know, you finally get, it is the big bad at the end. It's the, or not the big bad, but it's, it's, it's the mini boss mm-hmm. at the end. And the entire time, all the stuff that you've done all the way up to it was it harassing you, trying to get you to leave or, you know, just thinking of you as food. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole time you've more than likely whittled away at your spells, yep. healing spells, and your energy has now been depleted. And so by the time you go to actually fight it. And, and once again, that comes down to the DM, how he's going to play it. Mm-hmm. Is it a single predatory territorial animal or is it a pride of lions? Because you could be thinking this whole time you're fighting this one dangerous displacer beast. And you get there and you figure out there's three or four of them. Is the fight worth it? I, I love forcing players to make that decision of do we die here possibly or do we live and fight another day? Like Tuesday. Like Tuesday. Still upset. <laughs> but yeah, how would you how would you run it? Run the displacer beast? Mm-hmm. Let's see. If we were in a situation and I had you guys encountering a displacer beast, I would probably, one, leave it in a forest terrain. Uh, probably have, you know, like a cave or something a ways off because most wild animals actually do hunt far away from, you know, the den anyways. So you would go and you'd be like, okay, well, I am a mile away from a displacer beast. Like somebody said there's a displacer beast in this location, they show you on a map. So you know, okay, I can't go anywhere near there. So you would purposefully avoid this, right? But you don't know that the terrain, that the territory of this displacer beast stretches over two miles. You know what this sounds like? This sounds like your obsession with uh, true crime documentaries bleeding into the game. It really does. Because you know like how they triangulate a killer and all that stuff? Yeah. And they figure out his territory? Yeah. Because yeah, if it's that one attack, you're like, oh, well he, he operates in this general area. Mm-hmm. But what you don't realize is the attack in the other town. Well, and you have to consider it's like going to that. The Golden State Killer. His reign of terror wasn't just in the Golden State. But everyone thought it was. Everybody thought it was because it was generally there was a mass amount of deaths in the area but he had been working all over the united states there were deaths that were connected to him literally oh oh so far away from california just because you know he's not from there he just migrated in that general direction so you know with a displacer beast i would do something similar to that i would have the terrain be so much larger than what anybody would generally be known, you know, like, especially, you know, because you're going to have those characters or the players that are like, oh, don't I know something about it? Your character might not know anything about Displacer Beast, but you know, everybody wants to have information. Yeah. 
So I would give them information like, oh yeah, you were skimming through a book in a library and you heard that, you know, it hunts within, I don't know, about 600 feet of the cave. So your thought process is if I don't go anywhere within 600 feet, I'm safe. But lo and behold, it's over 200 or, you know, two miles and you're in its territory. And what you don't know is there's probably, you know, a cross section, like a Venn diagram where you're at the threshold of that two miles and there's another one on the other side and you're not like you're in displacer beast country pretty much yeah and you don't know this because nobody has ever seen another displacer beast they've only seen the one because they all hunt at separate times no for that the other thing you could do is you could set areas within the territory of a beast like where it would roam and what you could do is you could have a certain percentile and you could keep rolling percentile die behind the... I know people hate when DMs do it, but mm -hmm. I kind of like it because it's like... Wait, what are they doing? Wait, 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 wait why are you rolling that die? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, it, it doesn't matter. You guys are fine. Nothing's going on. But the entire time, you're just waiting for the number to come up. And if they're right next to the den, it might be a, a one in two chance that you're going to run into this placer beast. Mm -hmm. But if you're right on the edge of the territory it might be a one in 10 chance. Yeah. But the entire time you're rolling that die, you're waiting, you're waiting the entire time for it to come up. And I think leaving it up to chance almost makes it worse. It does because your first roll, you might get it. You know, actually thinking of that, I, I did something similar to that with your, with your first um, encounter with the owlbear in uh, the game I ran. Mm -hmm. So if you did that with a displacer beast, because you guys both ran. Oh, no, because I remember I rolled two 20s. Yes. When we were doing the uh, our, our watch that night. And we were near a, uh, a watchtower, too. So we should have been safe. Yeah. But we took watch anyways. And I rolled two 20s. And we had two, like, we had an owlbear show up. And he came back later that night. And then he rolled came another back 20. later that night. And I was like, oh, my God, we're going to die. But you were able to get it to leave. Yes, I did scare it off. And then uh, we had that other character who came into the game late, and I made him have to go back through that whole path tracking yes, you down. Yes, he had to get to us. And he rolled a 20. And he rolled a 20, and then he killed and, it. <laughs> and he and he killed it, which is, I was upset because I love the way your character interacted with it. But I, the idea was basically very similar. That forest literally the chance of anything coming out of there because you guys decided to go near the watchtower. If you hadn't been near the watchtower, there was a much higher chance of running in the owlbear. It's uh, like a one in four is why I said it. Mm -hmm. You literally had a one in 20 chance of running into the owlbear because you're right next to it. It's scared off by the lights. It doesn't want to go near people. And for some reason, all three times that you guys rolled, it was the owlbear. And I was, I was both upset because there was other stuff I was hoping you guys would see because I was, you know, I made this whole natural environment, but that's what I'm talking about. It's is having a, the closer you get to where it lives, the higher the chances you're going to run into it. Mm -hmm. And I, I really like doing that because it's, you could have literally just seen it, and you're like, okay, well, we killed this one, we have no problem. But if you're running it like a pride, you roll that percentile die again, and it and it hits again. They're going to be sitting there like, either a, they're going to be the DM hates me. 
or B, they're going to be sitting there like, oh no, this is way worse than it actually is. Mm-hmm. All right, so JR and I have decided to work together to see if we can create a, I guess you could say, modified version of the Displacer Beasts. Uh, we were going to kind of level up, I guess you can say, you know, the creatures. I was going to do one step higher than the traditional Displacer Beast. He was going to do something, you know, higher up than mine. But our ideas were kind of conflicting at the end. So... Mine's better. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> considering. But yeah, you know, we, we, we were kind of just butting heads. So we just decided, you know, whatever we just came up with at the end, we will, you know, kind of leave it at that and share it with you guys the listeners so i made a greater displacer beast uh the traditional displacer beast has an ac of 13 13 uh for those who are following along it is page 81 in the monster manual so it's a large monstrosity lawful evil ac of 13 natural armor i have bumped it up to a 14 the HP is an 85. I bumped it up to a 100, so that would be a 14d10 plus 30. Uh, the speed is 40. Then I have an 18 strength, left that the same, 17 dex. 16 con, 10 intelligence versus the 10, or the six uh, in the book. 14 wisdom versus 12, and I love charisma the same. Um, I did not agree that the passive perception for the Displacer Beast should be an 11. So I modified it to a 15, uh, which would obviously tie in with the wisdom. Uh, I gave it a plus five to perception and a plus six to stealth. And that's kind of going off of what JR was saying where, you know, these are predatorial creatures. You know, they would learn how to stalk, how to be stealthy in their own terrain. Mm -hmm. So why not add that to the creature itself? Um, We did leave avoidance and displacement in there. I did add keen senses, which is something that uh, dire wolves would have. Um, I added invisibility, except I only added it for one hour. And it's only a once per day use so so in other words it's uh it's basically like the spell yes they use it one time but as soon as they attack or anything it's gone yes exactly um the only reason why i didn't want to have it as an action is because i feel that going from a regular displacer beast to a greater displacer beast it's kind of stepping up at that point so so this is kind of like a there's like a mid-level... No, no, I'm saying like a more mature one. Like it's lived longer and it's figured some things out. Yes. Okay. You know, so now it's learning how to become invisible versus just stealthing in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, it still has multi-attack. I did also add grapple only because I'm thinking with the tentacles, you know, they, they're more like, uh, like Velcro hooks. And I feel that the tentacles would have, you know, the Displacer Beast would have the ability to control these. And they might not be super strong. They might not be able to constrict something. 
but I do feel like they would be able to grasp something and bring it within its range where it can use its multi-attack to bite it or claw it. I could see that. I was I, I was of the mindset with mine, I know we'll get to it later, but that as it grows, those appendages of his would get stronger and stronger because I think it would be something that it normally just uses most often. Mm-hmm. And I would think they would keep getting stronger and stronger to the point where they could grab smaller creatures and just squeeze them with it. Yeah. So. But yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Um, with my bite attack, um, main thing, you know, just a typical bite. Uh, I know that the Displacer Beast does not have that. Uh, my thought process, again, is that it is a feline creature you know just like wolves just like chimeras and whatnot you know they have the ability to bite things this thing has teeth and i understand you know they're more of a i guess you could say avoidance creature but if in the middle of a fight it needs to attack i feel like it would be necessary for it to have an actual attack versus just kind of whipping something and potentially running away um as we had discussed, uh, using fairy fire while it is in using displacement. Or invisibility. Or invisibility would kind of negate it. At this point, this creature is now, I guess you could say SOL. Because I think fairy fire actually states in its description that it makes invisible creatures. It even outlines invisible creatures. Yeah. So, so. you know, at that point, this creature is, especially if it's surrounded, it has nothing, it, it's cornered. Mm-hmm. How else is it going to get out, you know, if somebody cuts off one of its tentacles what else is it going to do it has claws it has teeth why can't it attack with it so i added bite and claw attacks to it uh with the bite i did allow a uh strength save for potentially knocking it prone kind of like the wolf yeah pretty much i based it off of a dire wolf at this point um Claw attacks are just claw attacks. They would be a 2d6 plus 4 slashing. And the tentacles, I kept them uh, relatively the same. It In the book, it's a 1d6, and I just added another d6. Okay. Because, you know, it has two tentacles, so I figured it would, like, kind of, like, double whip you. Uh, yeah, so that would be my version of a greater displacer beast. Jair, what did you come up with? Wait, 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 hold on. Before before we go on, so that's that's challenge rating. I would say around a four or five. The book says that the regular displacer beast is a challenge rating three, which I don't agree with. The I, way it's stated, I feel like it's more of a CR one. The only reason why it's a CR three, I guess, is because of the displacement and the fact that it can kind of avoid attacks. I, I, I there's if you. There's discussions amongst people on forums and stuff where they talk about defensive monsters and or monsters being rated by CR defensively and offensively. And I think that offensively, it's crippled. It, it, it doesn't have a lot of offensive ability. But defensively and ambush attack wise, it's great. I think a CR combined CR2 would have been where I would have put it at. Mm-hmm. So, um,. Yeah, so what did you come up with? Oh, um, so you kind of assigned me to make the the more powerful one, and so I made an Elder Displacer Beast, 
and it's a CR-10. I'm just going to go right off the rip. <laughs> I made this thing so that characters up to about level 10, especially if they are not in group, large groups, are going to be terrified of this thing. Mm -hmm. And the whole point that I had for this was that it's that nightmarish thing that's been stalking you through the forest this whole time. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so for... For mine, it ended up with an armor class of 16. I gave it the plus three bonus to natural armor, and its dex, I bumped it to a 17. I kind of added two to most of its physical stats. Mm -hmm. So strength moved up to a 20. It's a plus five. Dex is uh, a 17. It's Which now... would tie in with mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, 17 would be a plus three. Um con is 18 plus four i bumped his intelligence um to a 12 which is a plus one and the idea that i had here is that this elder is like the oldest among its group it's lived the longest it's the one that it's learned a lot and if you look at the lore the lore speaks of them as basically pretty intelligent creatures um, they escaped to the material plane because they were being hunted. They knew that if they had stayed primarily in the Feywild, they would have been in trouble. So I was thinking that they would be intelligent enough, um, especially to learn over time. Uh, I gave it uh, 16 wisdom, and charisma is a 10. Mm -hmm. So I also changed it so it has saving throw proficiencies and strength and dexterity. And the reason I did that is because once you get to like higher levels you're going to have players that have extremely ridiculous, especially, you know, CR 10, you're facing, you should be facing four level 10 characters. Yeah. And there's going to be some spellcasters with some really high DCs. Mm -hmm. And at least giving it strength and dex, which are physical abilities. I didn't want to give it any mental abilities because I felt like that would be kind of counterintuitive for something that's more of a a creature than a, than, than a person. Yeah. Um, I did give it skills in acrobatics, athletics, intimidation, perception, and I gave it expertise in stealth. So it's uh, got a plus four proficiency bonus, and with the expertise, that makes it stealth plus 11. So I envision this thing as the ultimate ambusher. It has lived its entire life as apex predator, always attacking from the shadows. I would think you know, with its age, it would have learned to, that would be its its main thing it's super good at. Um, because of its perception um, being a plus seven, because it has proficiency in it, that changes its passive uh, perception to a 17, which I think makes a lot of sense. I think you said yours was a 15? For passive, yes. Yeah. I actually, I really agree with that idea because wild creatures you would think would be more in tune to the changes of things around them um and actually speaking on that i gave uh it blind sight for 20 feet around it which i do have a under its abilities uh blind senses um it it can't use its blind sight while deafened and unable to smell so i gave it that weakness but at the same time you'd have to have a very inventive party to be able to blind it and remove its ability to smell at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
So there might, I mean, there might be something, especially once you've got level 10 characters. I'm pretty sure Bard or an illusionist wizard would come up with something. Uh, and this was kind of controversial with you. I did give it that it understands common, elven, and sylvan, but it cannot speak it. And I also gave it limited telepathy, kind of like a pseudo-dragon, where it can magically communicate the simple ideas, emotions, and images telepathically to any creature within 60 feet of it. And I was just thinking that this isn't just a regular beast, especially as, you know, um, I've given it invisibility and it has that displacement ability, mm -hmm. which I are inherently magical. And I'm thinking that over time it might become powerful enough magically to be able to do that. Or it might, especially the elder one, might be looking for a way to communicate. Mm -hmm. And if you noticed uh, their alignment's lawful evil, and if you look at their... Um, kind of like backstory in the book, it actually explains that they work with creatures. They don't work for creatures, they work with them. So in other words, unless they're getting something out of it, they're smart enough to realize if they're not, if they are, aren't gonna get something out of it. Mm -hmm. And so they'll work for creatures, or work with creatures that are kind of aligned to their goals. And my idea with that is that I would think that over time, interacting with people who speak common, the fact that they were they had to deal in the Feywild with Sylvans, and the elves kind of also, I'm thinking, are going into that. I, I would think that they would gain the ability to understand and uh, not not speak, but to a limited ability be able to request and transfer information. Mm -hmm. Um. But for abilities, uh, I did give it Ambusher because I would think that this thing over time has just, that's its thing. It, it is an ambush attacker. Um, ambusher gives it advantage on attack rolls against any creature it has surprised. So in other words, that first round, if they nobody detects it or if you know there was that one character who's unaware, it's got advantage on those attacks, mm -hmm. which makes it even more of a terrifying threat yeah. especially the first round now that's the thing though the way i built this is the first round or the that first moment in combat it's going to be monstrous to fight mm -hmm. but i've also designed it so it can't stay in the fight if it does it, it'll probably die pretty quick mm -hmm. um uh it kept avoidance uh i've already talked about blind senses it kept displacement i gave it keen senses so it has advantage on perception checks for sight, hearing, and smell. Um, the limited telepathy, I gave it pack tactics because I was thinking that an elder, though it would, you would think it would be a solitary creature, it might work in tandem with other groups of displacer beasts. Mm -hmm. um, and the other two things I gave it was pounce. Uh, that's if it moves towards a target in a 20 foot straight line and hits with a claw attack on the same turn, that target takes an extra 2d6 plus 5 slashing damage. And the reason I did that was because it has um, six sets of legs. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, you know, that first attack, and then it can also get the back ones if it actually pounces on you. It can mm -hmm. actually get the back ones on you. Um, and if the target is a creature, it must succeed on a DC 19 strength saving throw or be knocked prone. 
If the target is prone, the displacer beast can make another bite or claw attack against it as a bonus action. So as I said, that first attack that it does is going to make the players sit up and pay attention. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it will outright kill a character. <laughs> Even the weakest character, I don't think it would outright kill them on the first attack. I don't know. Some wizards are pretty squishy. S- some wizards are pretty squishy. And this, the other thing about how I would play this, this thing's smart. It's going to know who's the spellcasters. It's going to know who's the tank. Mm-hmm. It ain't, and it's going to know who could hurt it the most. And it's not the tank. It's the spellcaster. Yeah. So it's going to be stalking the group, waiting for a chance to get the spellcaster. And if it gets him, and it gets him bad enough, that spellcaster's out of the fight until you can <laughs> you can save him. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, with Pounce, it actually... Uh, uh, yeah, it's knocking them prone, and you get another bite or claw attack. And if you gotta think, I gave this thing multi attack with three attacks, so that means it gets basically four attacks plus that extra hit. So the idea was, you know, you're getting five attacks. So those four front front paws that it has, and its bite attack in a, in one go. Um, and you gotta think, you add that to the fact that it has uh, the ambusher ability for anything it's surprised. If your players don't get the hint from the get-go that, hey, there's something out here stalking you, someone's probably going to die. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes this thing terrifying. So I also gave it shadow camouflage because they're black, and they normally work in the shadows. And it gives them advantage on dexterity and stealth tracks made to hide in dark or dim terrain. Um, four actions. As I said, I gave it multi-attack. Um, it can make up to three attacks per round with either its claws, bite, or tentacles on its turn. Um, its other action is invisibility. The displacer can magically turn invisible until the attacks, until it attacks or until its concentration ends. So in other words, what I'm thinking is because it has a high con too and it doesn't have a bonus on it, if you do, if it is invisible and one of your players somehow gets a hit on it, I would force it to make a con check so that as i said i think this is more of an ambusher it's going to force it to run mm-hmm. because you don't want to stay especially if your weaker character is already down you don't want it to stay because it's going to just focus on what it needs to focus on mm-hmm. um i also gave it cunning action which allows it to uh, dash disengage or hide as a bonus action so basically it's that hit and run style tactic and then I gave it bite, claws, and tentacle attacks. The bite is a plus nine. All of these are plus nine to hit. Um, but if it does hit with the bite, it is 3d8 plus five damage. And if the target is a creature, it must succeed on a DC 19 strength saving throw or be knocked prone. Uh, the claws are just the 2d6 plus five. And the tentacle attacks are, I kind of took a little bit out of your book with the grapple. Mm -hmm. Um, they're plus nine to hit they have a reach of 10 feet uh, one target and they do 2d8 plus 5 bludgeoning damage plus another d8 of piercing and upon a hit the displacer beast chooses um, if the displacer beast chooses it can attempt to grapple the target as a free action with an escape DC of 19 until this grapple ends the target creature is restrained and the displacer beast can't attack or constrict another target with that tentacle because they have two. So my idea is that 
it bum rushes you guys and it gets in the middle of your your rear guard so you guys uh, a lot of people have a tendency to put all of the heavy hitters up front and all the defensive guys up front I think that's a big mistake I would always put my squishy people in the center and have kind of a middle of the road like your ranger would be at the back high perception he's he's hopefully going to catch it before it sneaks up on you and you would have your shield at the front but a lot of people make the mistake of putting the high perception character with a decent defense and the high defense person up front and then they leave like their cleric not their cleric but like a druid and a wizard in the back Mm -hmm. if you did that in this scenario there's a really high chance your party's not going to make it out of there Mm -hmm. and if they do it's going to be based on roles I mean, unless the druid was smart and wild shaped ahead of time into a creature that has keen senses. That's that's true. That's true. It this is this is something that I would definitely allow the players to make history or nature roles if they came across tracks or signs or I would, I would try to give them a hint along the way or, or give them a little bit of a heads up so that they know, hey, there's something really scary out here. Because this isn't something that you just, like if you were playing Curse of Strahd, mm-hmm. this is something you would have pop up out of nowhere because Curse of Strahd is a very brutal, no holds barred kind of- Module. Can, yeah, module. It's, the point is basically you're killing somebody every encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think having this out there would just terrify your players. Like, this is something you throw against them when they think they're hot to trot. They think they're the, you know, big fish in the little pond. Mm-hmm. And you got to think, CR 10, you got level 10 characters. They're stepping out of the little pond at this point. Yeah. Because 5, you're kind of like... You're getting your feet wet. You're getting your feet wet. 10, you're kind of stepping out into the world and becoming known in your region and your your area and then when i'm thinking 15 and 20 you're like you're changing the world at 15 your heroes to legends your your heroes to legends at that point but 10 you're getting your feet wet and it's like welcome to the real world yeah (laughs) Yeah. but no the displacer beast it actually reminds me of uh another creature it is not dnd related but i feel that it was influenced by D&D. Or the other way around. Nope. Thanator. The creature from Avatar. No. No, no, no. The other cat-like, way around. The cat-like creature because D&D, this creature has been out way before Avatar was created. Okay, I was going to say, yes. Okay, the other way around. Okay, yeah. Avatar <laughs> was definitely influenced. This is that it was influenced. When I saw that, when I saw that for the first time. We knew it movie, was a displacer beast. I was instantly like... That's, that, that's, that's a straight up displacer beast. It's a displacer beast. beast. Like, no question. But yeah, asked. its skin is black or purple, which in the original uh, version of the displacer beast, if you actually look at the artwork, it's black it's, or purple. It's purple. Mm-hmm. And now it's like a purplish black color, like a raven. Yeah, color. like it's like a like a I would say like a panther more or less. Like it's yeah. actually like a panther color. Um, it is the height is two point five meters. It is more in length, 5.6 meters. So that would make it a large creature. Just 5.6 meters, you're talking, what, close to 18 feet, somewhere in there? 16, 18 feet, somewhere? Well, it has to be because uh, 
what's her face i forgot what her name was the main character the female she was riding it at the end during the fight a medium creature takes up though a medium creature does take up a five foot square she's as tall as that creature no 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 no. well well, you gotta think the people the navi and avatar they're not um the size of regular people they're much larger than us yeah so they would be classified as large i think they would be classified as large so that would make that creature a huge creature more than likely yeah i was bored i was so close to going okay it's a huge creature but then i was like thinking about it more and i was like i mean there you chose large for Mm -hmm. yours and when i saw that it was large i was like well you know if hers is large the only thing that's going to make it better is time it's not going to get bigger yeah it's not a dragon it doesn't grow forever so it'll get stronger not yeah It'll gain muscle, not muscle mass. Like Oh, and that was the other thing. I did give it a climb speed, which I am very frustrated that the Displaced from Beast does not have a climb speed. Well, my thinking on that is it is a large creature. And I don't even think that Chimeras have a climb speed, if I'm not mistaken. And they're a large creature as well. They have fly, though, because obviously they have wings. Now, here's my argument for that, though. It has six arms and tentacles. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the the tentacles are like hooked, like Velcro in a yeah. way. So, yeah, there's going to be some sur- surfaces that's probably going to struggle to climb over. Mm-hmm. But it having those six legs, I would think it would give it a huge advantage trying to climb trees or craggy surfaces or something mm-hmm. like that. Now, obviously, like your... Its in- terrain is generally forest anyway. Yeah. So, so you would you would give it... I just gave it that. Yeah, I thinking. mean... No, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I feel like the Displacer Beast could have been done a little bit better as itself, just as it is as a base creature. It's great. I'm definitely not even going to knock that. It is a really good creature, but I feel like it's not something that it's meant to be used against higher level characters. I feel like this is more of a one level one to five kind of encounter. Actually, on that note, this is something I thought about when I first saw the spec sheet and stuff for it. I was like, this is that we're level three. What really scary beast can he throw against us that probably won't kill us? Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the specs, defensively, you could argue it's a CR three. Mm-hmm. But offensively, CR one most. Yeah. Well, earlier you said CR2, but yeah. No, no, I'm saying offensively CR1. Like, if you combine the two, you're going to meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, like just, I keep looking over at, you know, the screen that I have for the Thanator. Are we going to make these available for people, by the way? Um, yeah, I mean, we can. You can post them on your Instagram, maybe. I have them on, I could put them on Instagram, but I also have a Tumblr. Oh. Table Talk on Tumblr. So, you know, people can actually go and check it out there as well. That sounds like a shameless plug. Um, yeah, probably. Anyways, <laughs> go check out our Tumblr, <laughs> tabletop.tumblr.com. Uh, yeah, and any kind of information that we have um, talked about on the show, we will actually post it on there. You know, we'll try and keep it updated as much as possible. Uh, you can also submit questions and DMs on there or... As I said, on our email, tabletalksubmissions at gmail.com. Or you can DM it to me on my Instagram at dmdisaster. Well, yeah, so thank you for uh, listening in on this episode. 
of Table Talk. Yeah, thanks very much. I'm, I'm just getting to sit here and talk with my wife about D&D. This is like the greatest thing ever. So. <laughs> um, next week, we are going to be discussing character death. And we will also be working on another monster of the week, which will be gargoyles. Ooh, how okay. we can modify them, how to make them better, if they can be modified to be better. We should trade spots, though, this time. You make the powerful one, and I'll make the like mid-range one or something like that. I mean, sure, if you want. <laughs> Considering that you know I DM all the time, are you sure you want me to do that? <laughs> On second thought, I'll modify both monsters, <laughs> and we can't introduce them into any games that you play. <laughs> so that that'll be more helpful. Yeah, that Displacer Beast is off limits to anyone I play games with. <laughs> I just thought about that now. Like, oh, no, no. All right. Well, thank you, everybody.